Amen. So good to see all of you. Thank you for your faithful ministry just by being here and singing and listening well. Thankful for all of you. Uh, That song that Eddie was just uh, playing for us was just released this past week. It's called In the Valley. Uh, It's written by uh, City of Light. We've seen a few of their songs, and it's a delight to listen to. I've had it on repeat and stuck in my head the last several days. I'm thankful I can have it stuck in my head while I preach now. So I encourage you to look up In the Valley by City of Light when you go home. Not before, please. All right. uh, So we're going to turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're uh, going somewhat quickly through... Uh, one chapter at a time in, in Luke, as opposed to just uh, one chunk of a chapter at a time. We'll go back to that in a few uh, weeks or so here. But Luke is writing an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, describing who Jesus was and what he taught and what it looks like to follow him. And so uh, our understanding is that the, the initial audience of Luke was a man named Theophilus. This comes from the first four verses of the book and then from the first several verses of the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. And it appears that uh, Luke wrote this account so that this man, Theophilus, could understand very clearly who Jesus was and what it looks like to follow him. So as a new believer, what does it mean for me to take up my cross and follow Jesus? And Luke was answering that question very clearly for Theophilus and for our benefit as well. And so here we are in the 13th chapter. If you did not uh, come today with a Bible, uh, we encourage you to grab one off the resource table. I believe we still have a few out there right now. And uh, there may also be one under the seat near you. And we're going to be reading chapter 13, which is the big numbers, and verses 1 through 9, which are the small numbers on the page uh, for now. And then at each individual section that we'll preach through today, and we'll read that section at that point. So for now, I'll read chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along as I read aloud. There were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners, worse offenders, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. One fall semester of college, I had uh, three other roommates, and two of them had had a history with each other going into that semester, which meant that from the very beginning of the semester, it was just an uncomfortable place to be in our dorm room. There was regularly uh, little spats and arguments and disagreements about who is using my iron and who took you know, this protein powder out of my cabinet. I mean, just the most foolish conversations over and over again, and the conflict was continuing to rise throughout the semester. And then one day I came back after we had chapel and I came back after lunch and on the way up to the dorm room, somebody caught me in the hallway and said, hey, did you hear what happened? I was like, what are you talking about? 
And they said, yeah, your two roommates got in a fist fight today. I was like, oh, great, perfect. Here we are, just as a reminder, I was at a Christian college, so this is not supposed to happen this way. But these two bodybuilder types just had not learned how to get along with each other. It was like they were little brothers who had never learned how to share their, their you know, toy cars with each other. And so uh, essentially the, the tension that they had been experiencing and contributing to all semester had met its climax that day. And they decided to take it out on each other with their fists. And this was uh, not what I was uh, looking forward to uh, going back into my room that afternoon. And so when I got back, uh, one of the guys that was involved in the fist fight was there. And I started talking to him a little bit. A few minutes later, the other guy walked in, and round two started right away. And here I am, my scrawny 6'3", 150-pound self at the time, uh, standing between these two bodybuilder types who look like they're linebackers and just being like, guys, please stop. You know, that's the best I could do was just say, please stop. Bottom line was, their conflict was boiling over. And they didn't know what else to do about it besides take it up physically with one another. In our passage here today, the conflict is boiling over now. There's not a lot of conflict in the first couple of chapters of Luke when Jesus, as a baby, his, his early you know, months and years of his life are being described. There's not a lot of conflict except between Mary and Joseph and Jesus when, when Jesus uh, was 12 years old and he went to Jerusalem and he's sitting there learning in the temple. Not a lot of conflict there. But then Jesus starts preaching in Luke 4. There's a lot of conflict there. And he continues to cast out demons and ruin people's lives in other ways. Because remember that sometimes these people were like, don't do that. It's, you know, we make money by, by having these pigs around and so forth. And he was affecting people's lives and it was generating conflict. Well, now here we are in chapter 13. And I only read one little snippet here. And there wasn't you know, necessarily any conflict in those first nine verses. But we're going to get into it here. There's a lot of conflict in this chapter. There's a lot of people who were angry at Jesus and at the effect that he was having on their lives. And in the face of this conflict, you kind of wonder, is Jesus going to be able to accomplish what he came to do? Or will his life be snuffed out before we get there? And the hope of this passage is that Jesus will certainly accomplish his kingdom work. There's no doubt about it. You can take it to the bank. Jesus is going to do what he came to do. And that's our encouragement today. So we want to follow him then. We want to be on his side, align ourselves with this Christ, with this Messiah, who will certainly accomplish his kingdom work. So if that's the case, that Jesus definitely will, even in the face of growing conflict, accomplish what he came to do, accomplish his kingdom work, what should you do? What does it look like to follow him? And this passage gives us four answers to that. And the first of those answers is that you repent while there's time. And that's what we just read in verses 1 through 9. You repent while there's time. And that implicitly means that you don't have all the time in the world to repent. There's going to be a day when you no longer have that opportunity. Right now, the fact that you're alive means you have the opportunity and you should repent. But you don't know how long you're going to have. And that's what Jesus was alluding to when people asked him about this atrocity that Pilate, who we just talked about in the Apostles' Creed, the same Pontius Pilate who killed Jesus, had evidently done some other wickedness here in verse 1 and 2. And this fits with historical records. This particular detail is not in any other historical details. We have no reason to doubt it. It's in the Bible. But there is plenty of other historical evidence that Pilate was a really bad guy. 
And here's just one other detail about that. He, there were people who had come to Jerusalem to, to make sacrifices to the Lord, and he killed them and took their blood after he killed them and mingled it with the blood they were going to offer to the Lord. That's wickedness. And Jesus said, do you think that those Galileans who had that horrifying experience, they thought they were just going to worship God, instead they're killed. Do you think that they experienced that because they were particularly wicked? No. And then, so he's talking about that atrocity that Pilate committed. And then he talks about an accident that happened. Again, we have no historical record about this happening. We have no reason to doubt that it happened. Jesus himself describes a situation where a tower fell and it, as it collapsed, it killed 18 people. Maybe you can picture that, that tower in Miami last June, I think June 24th of last year. And something like 98 people were lying in their beds, sleeping, and all of a sudden they were dead. And many of them probably had no idea what happened. Their last moments were just them sleeping. Were they more wicked? Was that why that tower fell instead of the one right next to it? Jesus would say no. What we would say about those people who died that day is that the end of their life came in the perfect sovereignty of God. Does that mean we can understand why? No. Why it was them? No. There's a lot of questions that we as humans have that we're never going to know the answers to until we meet the Lord. Perhaps we'll, we'll learn more at that point what was going on. Maybe a, a parallel to these uh, Galileans who had their bloodshed would be something like the Highland Park parade shooting. Were those people, I think it was seven or eight people who were killed at that parade, were they more wicked than the people who went to the Hinsdale parade or the people who went to the Schomburg parade or whatever other, were they more wicked? No. In the providence of God, it happened at that parade and not another. But what Jesus is doing by asking these questions is making you confront the fact that you never know when you are done with your time to repent. When you no longer have a choice to say, I will turn away from my sin and now I will follow Christ. You will likewise perish, Jesus says, unless you repent. You too will face the judgment for your sin. And he, what he's, just to be clear, he's not saying that these people were facing judgment for their sin and that's why they were the ones who died. He's saying there probably were people who were truly following God in that tower that, that, that fell in Siloam. And there were probably people who truly were there to worship God the true God, in the right way here that, when Pilate killed them. It doesn't mean that they were, they were facing judgment. It just means you never know when your last day is going to be. And so take that seriously and repent while you have the opportunity, while there is time. These historical situations were just designed to intend. Uh, we're, we're told by Jesus to teach us that physical death means meeting God, means your time has come, and you never know when that time will be. And so we are reminded, as even Andy Davis reminded us last week, that repentance is daily. This is not something that you do when you become a Christian, and it's done, and it's in your past. As Martin Luther said in the 95 Theses, the first of the 95 Theses, repentance is the whole Christian life. You're continuing to hate your sin. And we... Uh, often only repent of the outward words that we say or the outward actions that we, that we do with our hands or with our eyes and not for the inward beliefs and inward motives that are the invisible forerunners for our sin. We need to repent of those too, the beliefs, the motives, the inner compulsions. And 
salvation in the Bible is always tied to repentance. There's no such thing as salvation that's repentance-free. You just say with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and all of a sudden you're a Christian. You never have to do it. Repentance is always tied to saving faith. Salvation isn't just liberation from those who oppress us or abuse us. It's not freedom from poverty or pain. It's forgiveness of our sin when we own our bankruptcy before God. It's acknowledging that we are so bad we could never save ourselves, no matter how hard we tried. And we would never even seek salvation apart from the Holy Spirit Himself drawing us. Jesus is talking here about people dying. That's not necessarily a fun topic for us to discuss. Maybe you didn't come in here today wanting to be reminded that you are mortal, that you too will die one day. But we should be ready to talk about death. We should be uh, ready to grieve death. It's an intrusion in God's order, in the world that God made. And so we shouldn't make light of death, but we also shouldn't ignore it. Death should make us ache for the day when there will be no more dying and pain. So repent while there's time. After these historical situations that Jesus describes in verses 1 through 5, he then tells a parable that makes the same point, that develops the same argument that you should repent while there's time. Because you never quite know how much time you have. And so as we read in the parable, there's a tree that's not bearing fruit. It's a fig tree. You're supposed to see what on that tree? You're supposed to see figs. And when the owner of the tree comes out with Let's say he owns hundreds of trees, and so he's walking through his vineyard and through his uh, orchard, inspecting the different trees with his, you know, tree manager. (laughs) And he says, hey, how come this one isn't bearing fruit? It wasn't bearing fruit last year either. And now that I think of it, even the year before that, it wasn't bearing fruit. Go ahead and cut that one down. And the manager says, well, I totally understand. It should be bearing fruit by this time. Let me try two more fruit tree growing techniques. I'm going to use my pitchfork and try and kind of pull up some of the dirt around it. Maybe it's too tightly compacted. I'm going to put some manure around this tree. Let's give it a little bit more time and see if some fruit will grow next year. If it doesn't, then yes, it's a dud tree and it's taking up valuable space and we can tear it out and put a different tree in its place. But in the meantime, let's wait a little bit longer. And what that's doing is showing us God's mercy. That parable is showing us God's mercy, that he is willing to give you more time. But yet, there is also judgment. There is God's, God receives glory in showing his mercy, but also in, in revealing his judgment. And there will come a time when if you have no longer, you are no longer bearing fruit, you are, you are not accomplishing your purpose, you will be cut down. That's what this parable is saying, and it's making the same argument that you need to repent now while there is time. And so we as believers need to tell people the good news. We need to present the choice before people. You can continue to try to pay for your own sin yourself. This is what we tell them. Or you can throw yourself on Christ and let him pay it for it. And sometimes, you know, I realize you might have 30 seconds to share the gospel with someone. Last Saturday night, I was at a park with my boys, and I started interacting with a guy. I said, what kind of work do you do? This is the easiest inroad for me to share the gospel with someone. I realize that you're not all pastors, so it doesn't work that way. But you can get to this, all right? It was a Saturday night. I could have said, what are you doing tomorrow? And if they are thoughtful, they will say, well, what about you? What are you doing tomorrow? And you could say, I'm going to church. 
do you go to church anywhere? So that's the easy road for you. For me, it was, what kind of work do you do? da di da da And the guy, thoughtfully, this does not always happen, did say, and what do you do? I'm the pastor of a church. Do you go to church anywhere? Okay, so there's, there's my easy inroad. And he goes, uh, no, no. And he was a Hindu man. And I said, so what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I don't really know anything about Jesus. You should come to our church tomorrow, and I'll tell you about Jesus. And you'll hear us sing about Jesus. And I gave him my business card, and he looked through his wallet, and he didn't have one. Typical. Not really. Uh, but I, just, I said, here, just text me, all right? My number's on this card. Just text me. He hasn't texted me. Typical. <laughs> uh, people weren't, typically aren't willing to give their contact information to someone who they know is going to share the gospel with them. <laughs> That's kind of what I've concluded over time. That being said, in that little bit, I did say, because he asked something like, what is your church belief? And I said, we are an evangelical church. That means we believe the gospel. The gospel is, and then you should be able to fill in the blank from there. What would you say? The gospel is the good news that God forgives us because we put our faith in Christ alone. Something along those lines. That's what you say. And you put the weight of that on him. Have you ever confessed your sin to God? Now, I didn't have time to do that. I had three kids running, four, because his kids were involved in this this scenario too, running circles around us while we're having this conversation. But I put the rock in his shoe, right? I made him have to think, oh, maybe there is a God. Maybe I should, because he even said, I don't teach my kids religious beliefs. You should. You should teach them what the Bible says. And so all that to you put the rock in his shoe, and then you have to go on your way at times. The point, though, is that to follow Jesus means to repent. And we need to tell people that ourselves. We need to believe that ourselves. And if you're outside of Christ today, we would urge you to turn in faith to Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sin and choose to follow in his ways. It's that simple. And if you are a believer here, which I assume is the vast majority of us, you already put your faith in Christ, you're seeking to follow him and walk with him. This means that there's still time for you to identify your own sin habits and repent of those, and to make war on your sin. And some sin habits, you can make war on them without asking for the help of another Christian. But as, excuse me, as we discussed in our Sunday school class this morning, some sin, sin habits do require the help of another Christian because they've, the, the sin has so entangled you. It's like it's wrapped its tentacles around you for so long, you don't know how to begin to untangle those tentacles that are strangling you and making your life miserable with your sin. You want freedom. You hate the guilt you experience when you yell at your family, or lie, or gossip, or whatever your particular sin habit is. You hate the guilt that you feel after you commit it, but you don't know how to stop. Get help. There's still time for you to repent and get help. And so, please reach out to me, or to Clayton, or to another mature believer in our midst, and ask for help. Just simply say, I need to talk. Can we get together to talk about something? Absolutely. My schedule is wide open for these kinds of conversations. So repent while there's time. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Repent while there's time. Verses 10 through 17, I'm going to read in just a moment. It's going to tell a story of Jesus working a miracle, and you would think that would be the point. But I think the emphasis is actually on the response to the miracle. And so Let's read verses 10 through 17, and in this section, we're going to see that what it means to follow Jesus is you get on his side. You land where he lands. You get on Jesus' side. You align yourself with him. Verses 10 through 17. 17, excuse me. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Get on Jesus' side. That's the point of verses 10 through 17. It could seem like this is a story that primarily demonstrates the power of Jesus to heal, to cast out demons. That's all glorious. We've seen that throughout the book of Luke. It is wonderful to see God's power here in Christ. But the emphasis is on the reaction Jesus received. People immediately fell into one of two sides. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. You know it's the same way today. People are either with Jesus or against him. There's no neutrality. If you're calling yourself neutral, you're against him. That's what the Bible teaches. You can either kiss the sun or be rejected. That's what Psalm 2 teaches. So Luke is telling us the story to say to get on his side. You can tell that the argument has to do with the Sabbath because the word Sabbath is mentioned five times in this section. We're just observing the details here. Okay, clearly the conflict is over. What's it look like to observe the Sabbath in light of Christ's ministry? Several other sections deal in Luke with the Sabbath, including one in chapter 14 next Sunday. But we see Jesus, even on the Sabbath, showing his concern for physical needs. It's not all he cared about, but he did care about it, so we should care about it too. Yes, we want to be most concerned about what's going to happen to someone after they die, but it doesn't mean we're cold about their their current problems. And so perhaps this lady has some kind of condition where she... Again, because verse 17 or verse 16 tells us that it was because of a demonic influence in her life. She had been bent over for 18 years. Maybe you've met someone like this who has some kind of a a crippling disability. It looks uncomfortable. It looks embarrassing even. I'm sure going out in public when you have this kind of situation where you can't walk normally, you can't stand up straight, would be embarrassing. I had a coworker like this, an elderly lady who was super good at her job also walked very unusually and couldn't stand up straight. And maybe something like that is what Jesus is describing here. But this woman was made in God's image. And so Jesus showed concern toward her. And we see the evil of hypocrisy once again. As we've seen throughout Luke, this is another theme. And look at the hypocrisy. When, when Jesus heals this woman and, the, and this woman glorifies God in verse 13, look at the ruler of the synagogue in verse 14. Who does he address his comments to? To the people. He doesn't even look Jesus in the eye. He's just kind of like, and just as a reminder, everybody, it's the Sabbath day. So come back on, this would have been Saturday. So come back Sunday through Friday if you want help. But not today. And Jesus responds to that. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Because obviously, he's saying this to the people And you can tell that some people were indignant. 
But other people, so, so, so Jesus addresses this to, addresses himself to the people. He says, you hypocrites, plural. He's not just addressing the one person, the guy who's calling him out passive-aggressively. He's very specific that this is exposing a heart condition called hypocrisy where you're trying to show that you're something that you're not. You're putting a mask on. And let's just think for a second about where in the Old Testament it says you can't heal someone on the Sabbath day. This many places. It never shows up in the Bible. These people have developed religious traditions that extrapolate on Sabbath laws and say, well, we can't cross this line, so let's not cross this line either. And Jesus says, that's hypocritical. Of course you're going to take your animal out to get water. Why would you not care for someone who's made in the image of God? This man is indignant. Perhaps you've experienced someone being indignant about some foolish situation like this one. This man was angry that Jesus was going against religious tradition. His anger was misplaced. And sometimes ours is too. Sometimes we get indignant about things that truly do not matter. There are things we should get get angry about. uh, But usually we get angry that somebody doesn't see our preferences as being as important as ours are or our priorities as being important as ours are. And so I would just ask, what angers you? What do you get indignant about? Are you angry that commercials normalize dysfunctional, disrespectful relationships? Have you ever noticed this? The way a wife talks to her husband on commercials is consistently derogatory and ugly and disrespectful. That should make us angry as Christians. That would be righteous anger. Are you angry that we're never quite sure that we're being told the truth when you listen to a political ad? Like, which of these two people is telling me the truth? It's probably somewhere in the middle. Probably neither of them are telling me the truth. And that should make us angry. Why can we not expect people to tell us the truth? But this man's anger was misguided. We should be angry about what God is angry about. Not that someone broke a perceived law that wasn't a law in the first place in this case. But you notice in verse 17, the people who were on Jesus' side rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Have you ever watched the Masters Golf Tournament and there's complete silence across the golf course and then somebody makes an incredible shot and thousands of people scream at the top of their lungs and even if a player is a mile away on the other side of the golf course, he hears that roar because they're celebrating the glorious things that are happening on, say, the 17th green. What they're doing here is they're celebrating, they're rejoicing at the glorious things God, that, that Christ was doing. And in doing so, he put his adversaries to shame in the middle of verse 17 there. That will be true for all who oppose God and dig their heels in in their rebellion. We hate to have people look down on us, make fun of us, shame us. Maybe they make fun of us because of our physical appearance, because we're not as cool as they are because we don't go to a certain kind of event or watch a certain kind of movie or hold to the same beliefs that they hold to, so we're not as cool as them, it's uncomfortable to be put to shame by our enemies like that. But it's far worse to be God's enemy and put to shame on the last day. And the way to avoid that, being put to shame by Christ, is by putting your faith in Christ alone. So what does it look like for us as Christians to get on his side? You might be thinking, like, I'm already there. Like, I put my faith in Christ, so I'm on his side Good, so let's talk about some of the implications of that. Don't be ashamed of the truth. Don't be ever embarrassed of something that God does or something that God says. 
He's not embarrassed of what he says and what he does. So we don't need to be embarrassed either. Uh, Perhaps you could uh, improve your apologetics. You're like, I'm not sure how to be on his side because I don't know how to explain what I believe. Apologetics just simply means being able to defend what you believe and why. And so maybe you could take an online class on apologetics. Maybe you could listen to a podcast. You could Google apologetics podcasts and find some. You could read a book on apologetics or, or there's a variety of ways you could do this, but be convinced of what you believe. That's all I'm urging you to do. Be convinced of what you believe and why so that you can clearly land on Jesus' side. And be careful of aligning yourself with a political party or a Christian subculture that can at times veer from what the Bible teaches. They're not going to tell you they're veering from what the Bible teaches. They want you to think that this is what the Bible truly says. But the more we read the Bible, the less we see the, the exact overlap there at times. And so read the Bible, do what the Bible says, even when it's not popular. Believe what the Bible says, even when it's not going to be politically correct. And if you're wondering, well, I don't know if I'm interpreting this passage correctly, this is truly, and I'm not saying this in any kind of a sarcastic way, this is why God gives us pastors. And you have Clayton and me to help you make sense of difficult texts where you're like, I'm not sure if I'm applying this correctly. Please ask us. This is our job, and we delight to help you with this. Finally, join a faithful church. And that means, and I realize, again, most of you already have, but Perhaps there's someone listening online. (laughs) That means a church that does what it does because the Bible says it. It means a church that's committed to preaching the whole Bible, not just being trendy. You're not ever going to have, at least as long as I'm the pastor here, okay, that's as far as I can go, you're not ever going to have a sermon series here called Your Best Life Now. You will, you did, if you went to a different church in our area this summer because I saw their sign. It means not giving in to gimmicks just because it makes people want to be there. I love it when there's people here. But you know what? There's huge places where thousands of people gather together. Is that a sign that they're doing things the right way? No. Does the fact that you might have a room full of eight people mean they're doing it the wrong way? Not necessarily. You want to ask questions in both directions. You can have a really healthy church with a couple thousand people there, and you can have a really healthy church with a dozen people there. But the bottom line is, we don't want to give in to gimmicks just because it makes people want to be there. If a church is catering to non-Christians, it means that they're leaving off some part of the gospel message. Because non-Christians don't want to hear it unless the Spirit of God is working in their hearts. So get on Jesus' side. Verses 18 through 30 tell us to expect the unexpected. To follow Jesus means to expect the unexpected. Let me read this passage, 18 through 30. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Expect the unexpected. The kingdom of God will grow to an unexpected size. That's the point of these two parables, verses 18 through 21. And they're making the same point, that the, parab- that, that the kingdom looks unimpressive. It looks super tiny and like it's never going to amount to anything. You have Jesus and these 12 disciples walking around the countryside. Doesn't look super impressive. Like we want guys on horses with spears. That's when we'll know the kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the sign of the kingdom. The kingdom is going to grow in unexpected ways. It's going to be so big that birds will plant nests in the trees. In other words, it's not just a tiny bush anymore. It's going to grow and expand and prosper even though it's happening invisibly. Sometimes we want the growth to be super visible and super quick. So yesterday, my son Andrew walked up to me and goes, Dad, what's on my back? And I turned him around and pulled up his shirt and he was kind of scratching at it and it was a little scab. And I said, well, it's just a scab. He goes, I hate tabs. Because he can't say the yes sound. And I said, okay, it's okay. It's going to heal itself and new skin is going to develop and overtake the scab and it won't be there anymore. And he goes, but I want that to happen right this second. I said, it usually happens invisibly over time when we're not even paying attention. And I thought, ding, there's a sermon illustration for tomorrow. So there you go. So, God's kingdom usually happens in unexpected ways, spreads in unexpected ways, and it happens slowly. It's a point of, but, but, it, but it does happen. It is going to happen. It is going to grow, and that's the point of this second parable as well. It's going to be invisible. You wouldn't expect that combining flour and wheat, uh, or wheat flour and, and yeast is going to amount to anything, and so I just thought I would show a little visual example. This is the amount of flour you need, and this is the amount of yeast you would need to make a beautiful pan of cinnamon rolls. So if anybody's interested, this is what you take home afterwards, and you stir this together with warm water and a few other ingredients, and you have a beautiful, warm bowl of yeast-smelling goodness, and you would think you need a lot more yeast because that's so little, and those little creatures are just so tiny, but over time, it's going to blossom and flourish and it's going to be beautiful. And that's what Jesus is drawing out for us here. Yes, it goes slowly. Yes, it happens invisibly sometimes. And, you know, we could look around at healthy churches in Chicagoland and be like, yeah, this gospel thing's not really doing what we want it to do. It's not as fruitful and prosperous and powerful as we would like. Of course, we would love for it to be a little bit more visibly evident. But be patient. God works on his timetable. And so we as a church, we preach and we pray and we wait patiently. As individuals, we faithfully parent our children. That means, in general, that we feed them, we bathe them, we clothe them, we educate them, we pray for them, and we put them to bed. And there's going to be some drama in between all of that, but you do the right thing over and over again. And you wait and you patiently pray We evaluate God's work by God's metrics, not by human metrics. So it may not be impressive to the eye, but there's no reason to be discouraged. And this passage gives us cause for humble, confident joy. 
Because there is the beautiful expectation that something good is going to come, that God's kingdom will grow. People will come from all over the earth to worship Christ. And how do we know that? Because we ourselves have done that. How do we know that? Because on every continent today, there are churches preaching the truth, celebrating Jesus, that He truly was dead and that He truly came back to life and is still alive. This passage is sobering, though, when you have people saying, we ate and drank at the same table as you. Who could that be referring to? The Pharisees ate and drank with Jesus. You have people saying, we were in the streets where you taught. We saw you heal that woman. We saw that blind man, which we'll see in a future passage, get up and see. We watched you do these amazing things. How are we not part of your kingdom? And this passage is a reminder that universalism is nowhere in the Bible. All right? it's just, you can have as many popular politicians in American history, John Adams, people, I think even Abraham Lincoln, people along these lines were universalists. Everybody's going to get saved at the end. It's just not what the Bible teaches. You look at what the, the Bible says, you strive to enter, you agonize. That's the Greek word there is where we get our, our Greek word for our, our English word of agonizing. You strive to enter through the narrow door. There are many people who will not be saved. And so we celebrate God's kindness to us and we pray that the gospel would run and that more people would be saved. But we also acknowledge that just because you heard Jesus teach or you ate at the same table as him does not mean that you will be in the kingdom on the last day. And so maybe you would say, but Jesus, I was a member of a Baptist church. My parents were leaders in that church. I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. I took the Lord's Supper. I went to a Christian college and you could fill in the blank further and further. None of those actions guarantee salvation. Only believing that Jesus was the only one holy enough to save you and that your sin is bad enough to merit the eternal just wrath of God and you repent of that sin, that is what will save your soul. I love this, this last phrase of verse 30. Behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Those who are the least important or least likely to be saved are the ones who in the end will be first or actually in the kingdom. They will have a place there. And some who seem like they have the fast track, like they have the whole Bible memorized, like somebody we just might have met, not quite the whole Bible, but you would think that would save you. And even Andy Davis, who's on his 47th book that he's memorized, would say, that does not save me. You simply can not say, but I had every law memorized. Doesn't that get me into the kingdom? Pharisees had a lot of laws memorized, maybe all of them memorized, and a lot of extra laws on top of that. But we as Christians lose now to win later. Those who have, seem to have the fast track, maybe they teach in a seminary, Maybe they're pastors or deacons or Sunday school teachers or church members. Whatever it means to be on the fast track. On the last day, what it means to be first is that you have put your faith in Christ. Those who are in the kingdom are those who have aligned themselves with Christ. The kingdom spreads in unexpected ways, grows in unexpected ways, and the kingdom will include unexpected people. Do you notice this? Like You would think the people who are going to be saved 
are the Jewish people. And that's certainly what they thought. Like, we are the ones. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are my great, 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 great grandparents. I should get into the kingdom because I'm with them. And Jesus says, they're going to come from north and south and east and west. That means all over the world. And they're going to come and they're going to be in the kingdom on the last day. In other words, there are going to be people who are in God's kingdom that we're surprised by. And if somebody knew you five years before you got saved, would they be surprised that you're there too? Probably. Perhaps you've read the story of Rosaria Butterfield, an English teacher at Syracuse University who loved to make fun of Christians. And so she started writing a book, Making Fun of Christians, and got saved in the process and is now married to a pastor and writes wonderful books and raises foster children to love Christ. She's an unlikely convert. That's what she calls herself. And the kingdom will be filled with people like that who once were lost and now are found, who once were blind and now they see. And it's not because they were special. It was because Christ graciously saved them. So expect the unexpected. Finally, verses 31 through 35. If you're going to follow Christ, what's it look like to follow Christ? What do you need to do? You need to anticipate conflict. Verse 31, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who follow Jesus should anticipate that they themselves will be hated and despised in a culture like our own. It is not a popular time and a popular place to be a Christian today. At least if you're not going to say, at least if you're going to say what the Bible says. We can say only what the Bible says and we can say it in a humble way and we're called hateful bigots. We're called intolerant. It said we're out of touch and we're behind the times. It can be a little embarrassing to be a Christian at times. Have you felt that? We need to anticipate conflict. We don't know why these Pharisees came to Jesus. Typically, they're portrayed as being Jesus' enemies. It's possible they're still doing that. It's possible they're lying. Maybe Herod didn't actually say, leave before we kill you. Maybe this was their way of getting him out of there. It's possible. It's also possible that Herod was so sick of him, he didn't actually want to kill him, but he thought, maybe if I threaten him, he'll leave. Get him out of here or... You know, maybe he'll die accidentally somewhere else and it won't be on my hands. We have no idea why they said this about Herod, but Jesus' response is actually beautiful. He calls him that fox. Just, you know, that's not a compliment. It's not very, um, you know, warmly received most times. It means you're sly. It means you're deceitful. It means you're underhanded. And Jesus was saying, Herod, I want nothing to do with you. But we do see, even in his you know, strong words toward Herod, saying, I'm going to do my ministry. That's what he means by, I'm going to cast out demons. I'm going to cure people. I'm going to keep doing what I do until I need to stop. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I'm going to die on my time. I'm going to lay down my own life and no one can take my life from me. That's in the book of John. But we do notice Jesus' compassion toward the people who he knew would be the ones to crucify him. He says, oh, Jerusalem, I wish you would repent. He's looking down on the city and just saying, I know you're going to kill me in a couple days. I wish you would repent. That's amazing. We get bent out of shape if somebody doesn't smile at us or doesn't ask us a follow-up question about something going on in our lives. We get upset about the most trivial of things and hold resentful grudges toward people. And Jesus knew these people were going to kill him, and he said, I wish you would repent. I would gather you in the way a hen takes care of her chicks. I love you, and I know you're going to kill me. Jesus was not praying down judgment on these enemies. He wished they would turn from their sin. So expect conflict. And what I want to say is to do not, I just want to urge you to not be distressed by how unpopular or unimpressive it is to be a Christian. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back by saying this. People typically say, yeah, Eric, he's a really nice guy. And do you know what I have to do, what my temptation is? I want people to think I'm a really nice guy. So what do I have to do? I have to sacrifice the he's a really nice guy reputation for the sake of possibly snatching someone out of hell. That means sometimes you have to say something uncomfortable. Like, I appreciate you saying me, I'm a nice guy, but have you actually repented of your sin? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you from hell? If, so, for instance, if my children grow up saying, my dad was a cool guy, but they don't know the gospel, I can't control whether they actually walk with Christ, but I can control whether they know the gospel. Okay, let's be clear on that. But if they leave my home saying, my dad's a cool guy, but don't know the gospel, I have failed If people at City Hall or on the local police force or in other parts of our community, school PTO board or something like that, say, wow, the people at Brainerd Avenue are really nice Christians. But they actually don't hear the gospel from us. They just get food from us, which again, I think gives us a path to sharing the gospel with them. But if they have no idea that we believe that repentant faith in Jesus is necessary for every individual, we have failed them. We need to be clear on the truth. We don't need to stand around being jerks about it. We don't need to hold up signs saying hateful things. But let's just be clear that people in the world today are running toward the fire of hell without being aware of it. They are not thinking about the next life. They're thinking about the here and the now and what's going to make me comfortable here and now and make sure I have money in the bank when I retire. And these are the concerns in people's minds. It's like if someone were blind and deaf on 9-11 and they're walking through downtown Manhattan and they're walking toward the Twin Towers while everyone else is running away. But they're totally unaware of what's happening up in front of them. And that's the way our whole culture is today. They are not thinking, one day I'm going to die and I'm going to be the one in that casket put into that grave and I'm going to spend eternity somewhere forever. People aren't thinking about that. It's our job to wake them up to that, to tell them the truth before it is too late for them. And so we follow Jesus' example and say, oh, I wish you would repent. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
I would gather you in. I would show compassion toward you. But you are not willing. It's possible that a passage like this makes you ask, man, am I even a Christian? Like, this just kind of makes me uncomfortable. And I tell you, I don't love preaching about hell, about judgment, about repenting until, you know, before it's the last day. Like, it's so much easier, I'll just tell you, to preach Psalm 23. Oh, you are a sheep and God is your shepherd. That is a wonderful truth, and I love preaching Psalm 23. But we have to be honest that this is in the Bible, all over the Bible. And so maybe if, if you're used to only hearing Psalm 1 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 100, maybe you're not used to the Gospels and this is a little bit like, good night. Like, I didn't know this was what I needed to believe to call myself a Christian. Please keep coming. Please keep hearing. You'll hear from week to week a variety of passages that are urging you to take joyful uh, liberty in knowing that God cares for you the way He cares for many sparrows. That's wonderful. So just one passage after another. Keep coming and hearing the truth here. But if you do come to the end of this and say, man, I do not know that I truly am a repentant Christian, that I have put my faith in Christ alone, there's no better time than today. And we would love to talk to you, and I will be at the back door after the service, and Clayton will be milling around, and you can talk to just about anybody else here too and ask, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Because I thought I was. I've been going through the motions. I was even baptized. I consider myself a member of this church or that church or somewhere else. And what we would just say is, put your hope in Christ alone, not in something you've done or something you've prayed, but in Christ alone. He only is our hope. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus will certainly accomplish his mission, his kingdom work. We pray that we would be faithful followers of him, even on the hard days, even when it's uncomfortable, when people call us uh, hateful or ignorant or unintelligent or intolerant or any number of other names for preaching the gospel, we pray that we would not shy away, but that we would remember that you are truly drawing people to yourself, and it is our privilege to tell people the truth and invite them to feast in your kingdom forever. So we pray for your grace, because we know how difficult this is. We know how difficult it is even to repent of our own sin. Even those of us who are committed followers of you, it is difficult to make war on our sins. So we ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen.